You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi there, Served Up community. Julie here. As we kick off AAPI Heritage Month of May, I am honored to introduce you to Manjusha Kulkarni, co-founder Stop AAPI Hate the nation's leading aggregator of COVID-19-related hate incidents against AAPIs. Manju shares her personal story as a young girl growing up in Montgomery, Alabama, and how she discovered the power of laws and policymaking to address injustices. Manju's work has been featured in numerous publications, including The New York Times, CBS News, CNN, as well as several ethnic media outlets. As we recognize the contributions of AAPIs throughout U.S. history, let's cheers to leaders like Manju that are making history through policy to address injustice. Sit back, grab your favorite libation, and get inspired. Manju, thank you so much for joining us today on Served Up. Thank you for having me, Julie. We are so excited. I know we've, you know, had some conversations months ago about hearing all about the work that you're doing with Stop AAPI Hate. And I know that um, we were connected because Southern Glazers, you know, really contributed to the organization. Before we get into that, we'd love to know more about you where you grew up and what your family life was like kind of taking you into a, a young adult woman uh, before you started your career. Sure. And I just want to say how grateful we are um, for that contribution and, and your efforts in raising awareness. Um, I'm thrilled to be with you all today. Uh, in terms of my own background, uh, I... Um, spent my formative years in Montgomery, Alabama. And um, so I, you know, call Montgomery my hometown. And in terms of, you know, sort of what happened to shape me, I think one of the most sort of interesting things or sort of most illustrative in terms of what I chose to do for my life's work When I was about 10 or so, um, my mom applied for a position uh, at one of the local hospitals, and um, she and my dad were both doctors. And when she went for her interview, there was a panel of, uh, of white male physicians, and just right away, they said to her, why do you foreigners come in here and take all of our jobs? And so needless to say, they did not offer her a position in the practice. And so, and given what they said, and their, you know, very strong racial animus, they approached a civil rights attorney who was on the board of the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
And uh, not only did he take their case, but it became a class action lawsuit because what happened was um, actually the University of Alabama at Birmingham, as part of the statewide residency program for foreign medical graduates, essentially wasn't accepting anyone who wasn't from Europe. And uh, so my parents happened to settle that case. It was very hard and I think extremely courageous of them, given that, you know, my father was fully ensconced in the medical community there. And so some of the people he brought this lawsuit against were his colleagues. It not only was a favorable impact for my mother, and then she was able to sort of go back and do some of her residency, but it actually changed the course of how uh, UAB treated foreign medical graduates from outside of Europe. So what was interesting about that was all along, I had said I wanted to be a doctor like my parents, but like learning just a little bit about the lawsuit, obviously I couldn't understand um, all the inner workings, but thought to myself, you know, if the law in America can redress what has happened and address these injustices, that's something I want to do. So then, you know, uh, fast forward to college, uh, when I was at Duke University, I kind of went through um, those early pre-med classes. And, and then at a certain point, I just told them, I was like, you know what, I actually haven't wanted to be a doctor for a while. And so I, instead, I want to be a lawyer. And um, initially, they were not thrilled about it, quite frankly. I'm sure they had sort of hoped that I would follow in their footsteps. But ultimately, you know, they were proud of me. And, um, and so, yeah, that's sort of what happened. And so when you decided that rather than going down this path of being a doctor and you wanted to be a lawyer, was it specifically around your passion around kind of social and racial justice based on that experience when you were 10 with your parents? Yes. Absolutely. And so, you know, even in college, I um, did some work around racial justice. I uh, helped form a multicultural uh, organization. It was sort of an umbrella group for all the um, clubs for students of color. And uh, so I helped form it. I became the president of it by senior year. So um, that was really a learning experience along with actually teaching a class when I was at Duke, they had an opportunity for non-faculty to teach classes. So I put in a proposal and it was called uh, Ethnic Identities in America. And so I taught that class, which I loved um, uh, as a junior, actually. And so, you know, my students were actually, you know, people in my grade or my year, as well as, you know, younger and even older. And then right after college, before law school, I had a chance to intern at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that too uh, really, I think, sort of shaped the career path for me. That's really interesting that, you know, coming from Alabama, were your parents first generation immigrants? And I myself am actually. So I was born in India Mm -hmm. um, and I came when I was two. Okay. So obviously, I, I really don't have any memories of living in India. Certainly, our family went back to visit relatives and grandparents and stuff. 
But uh, yes, so we, the three of us came over in 1971. And then, you know, my two sisters were born later. And, and what a culture shock, right? I mean, Alabama being kind of the, the deep South. How did you guys settle on, on coming to Alabama? Well, so originally, um, we actually lived in Kansas City for um, five years, five and a half years. And that's where my parents did uh, most of their residency and fellowship, you know, the training for doctors uh, post-medical school. And uh, it was after that. So my dad actually pursued what was then a burgeoning field of neonatal medicine. So, you know, the NICU units for premature babies. And it was just getting started, getting off the ground in the mid-70s. And so he had an opportunity to help uh, really start a neonatal intensive care unit in Montgomery um, with another doctor who had just moved there like six months before. And, um, And so he took it. And that's what, yeah, they certainly did investigating. And I think knowing that this was after the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a real opening um, at that time in terms of, you know, new and different attitudes. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, some of it changed, not everything, obviously, uh, as evidenced by the lawsuit. But, you know, I could say that in many ways, I had a very happy childhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were able to, you know, live in a safe neighborhood have, you know, the two dogs, two car garage, a pool. Mm-hmm. So um, in that sense, like, you know, it, it was a good place to grow up. I've been hearing a lot about Montgomery, Alabama lately, and just how you wouldn't imagine it, but it's become this really diverse, you know, this, this new group of um residents kind of, you know, claiming their stake there, making it home that that are more progressive, embracing diversity, really um, doing a lot to uh, bring awareness to some of those difficult past histories that they have, like some of the slave museums. Actually, my husband was there and he was just like blown away with the technology and and what they're showing at these museums. He's never seen anything like that in the world. So that's good to, good to know. Right. I mean, well, and I think you saw it, you know, maybe, you know, 20 years or so ago in cities like Atlanta and like mm-hmm. the Raleigh Durham area. So those places in the South where immigrants did stake a claim and other people of color And so now you see really diverse, vibrant cities. Uh, And so I think, you know, it's coming to Montgomery as well. And as the population grows and industry and need for innovation. And, you know, even if you look at that time when I was growing up, actually, you know, just a few hours north in the city of Huntsville, there were actually a lot of um, Asians and South Asians because that was um, part of the space industry, mm-hmm. right? And NASA had a location in Huntsville in addition to Orlando and Houston. So you had, you know, post-Cold War, a lot of, um, of those doctors being recruited, uh, doctors and scientists and researchers being recruited from, you know, East Asia, South Asia, et cetera. 
Yeah, that's that's really um, it just it really adds to the contribution of immigrants and and just the diverse community into the, you know, in in this country that that we call America. And so tell us a little bit more as you kind of go through your college years. How did your kind of career journey start um, as far as working and then what led you to where you are today and and really leading the the Stop AAPI Hate organization? Well, thank you for that question. Um, uh, While I was in law school, I had an opportunity to work at the ACLU and MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, both in Los Angeles. Uh, Even though I went to law school in Boston, my boyfriend, now husband of 25 years, uh, was here in Southern California at UCLA for law school. So I came out, thought, okay, let's try California. Um, I had a wonderful time working at those two organizations and really learned so much about, again, how to use the law to uh, address injustice. And particularly at the ACLU, I started to work on a case that few people know about. During World War II, you know, most of us know that the U.S. government um, incarcerated 120,000 Japanese Americans, 60% of whom were U.S. citizens during their incarceration. What most people don't know is the U.S. government also went to Latin America, to Panama, Costa Rica, Peru, abducted several thousand people of Japanese descent in the middle of the night, put them on ships with the cooperation of those governments who are also anti-Japanese, brought them back to the United States and put them in their own internment camps. And so they were there for essentially two or three years and they were supposed to be used in a exchange with American prisoners of war. But then at a certain point that became untenable for FDR. So what happened then is just at the end of the war, they were deported to Japan. And keep in mind, these people had been in Latin America for generations. So many of them didn't know anyone in Japan, didn't speak Japanese. And guess where they were deported to? Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So right after we dropped the bomb on those two cities. When Ronald Reagan signed the American Civil Liberties Act, all Japanese Americans got $20,000, which was a piddly amount. I mean, all of their land and property was stolen from them, but it was something, and they got an apology. But these folks, because they were not U.S. citizens or permanent residents of the time, at the time of their internment, they didn't get any. So we brought a lawsuit to Mm -hmm. say that they were not being treated equally with those folks, even though they had the same experiences and even worse. Um, And so we, during the Clinton administration, settled with the U.S. government and they each got $5,000 and an apology. But they were all getting so old Mm -hmm. that it was important that we do this before they passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to get that apology, right, especially was important for them. Um, so I was really glad to be part of that. And I began to work on it at the ACLU. Wow, that is an incredible story. And I've never heard that part of it. I mean, um, you know, I have 
understand the Japanese internment camps and kind of really learned a lot of in my short time in Seattle and kind of really embracing that. But like the fact that they went to, you know, that we as a country went to Latin America and knowing that there's like Brazil, you know, that one of the largest populations of Japanese people live in Brazil, right? Like this whole Brazilian Japanese community, Peru, many of these countries and the fact that they're just being taken from what they know and what their life is and like thrown into a war zone is just insane. Right. Um, But you must be so proud to have a direct effect on helping some of those people get closure. Yeah. And, you know, it was really part of a movement. Um, Several of us, a dozen or so met every two weeks for years, really from uh, the time that I finished law school, I joined them. Uh, actively working on this case. We went to Washington, D.C. to advocate for these folks. And so this was really a team effort. Um, and there was, uh, it was called the Campaign for Justice. And so to be able to get that um, after, you know, essentially three or four years of work that I was involved with, in fact, many of the people on our team were doing this for over a decade. And so I was really proud and just so thankful that I was part of that collaborative. Yeah, that's, um, you know, and, and just knowing that you've made that change so that it's not even a thought, right, that that we would do something like that again into the future, because now it's policy, it's law. And what do you think of, you know, as the conversations around, you know, social injustice, racial injustice have really escalated over the last two years. And I think people are more comfortable than ever having these conversations, myself included, than I ever was two years prior. It's like, don't talk about it. Just do what you need to do. Um, You know, the one thing I hear a lot about is, okay, make it about DE&I or equality, but don't be political you know, or, or like it's got to be two separate things. And I remember we were doing a courageous conversation with our, you know, our black community at Southern Glazers. And one of the women said, no, it has to be political, because if you're not political and you're not putting the right people in offices, we'll never make change. So I would love to, to kind of get your perspective on that. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And it's not just political, it's about policymaking, right? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean at its core? It means impacting the lives of, you know, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, right? Mm -hmm. And if all we're doing is changing, you know, one mind at a time or doing, you know, it doesn't help to just sort of sit around the room and do kumbaya, you know, sort of activities. Mm That's not real DEI. If we mean diversity, equity, and inclusion, it means changing what's happening right now, right? I think for a lot of us, we thought those battles had already been fought, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like we had the civil rights movement. We ended slavery. We acknowledge the Japanese-American incarceration. So now we're just moving forward. But what we've realized in the last decade Uh, certainly in the last four or five years, is we are actually going backward in so many ways. We literally can't say that we have a democracy anymore. With all the voter suppression, the gerrymandering, 
Um, literally people are serving time in prison because they just voted. Uh, and that's what's happening right now all across the country. A number of states after the 2020 election actually put voter nullification laws on the books. That means they can decide that they don't agree with what voters have chosen in terms of elected officials and they can change it. Right. And we've he heard now in the last few days about all of the, the different folks who are part of the insurrection and really what we need to call out as treason. Right. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, the people 100%. voted for the current president and to overturn that by unlawful means is treason. That's what our forefathers told us. So absolutely, I think that policy is important and for calling out things for what they are. Right. If it is voter nullification, if it's a move toward authoritarianism, we need to be able to say that. And so it's going to have to be political, right? I think we have to, we, you see that even with climate change, right? For 20 years, we have said, oh, well, we can't be political about climate change. Meanwhile, all of, you know, the Antarctic, the ice shelf has, is gone, you know, mm -hmm. for like the size of Manhattan, that ice shelf dissolved into the ocean two weeks ago mm -hmm. because we couldn't be political. So while we're trying to engage in niceties and trying to maybe be reasonable with the other side, uh, we need to realize that they're not reasonable. And mm -hmm. it's not reasonable to try to end our democracy. Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more, right? It's, it's yeah, you, we can get everybody to be PC around the topic and be nice and friendly. But if that in the end doesn't equal, you know, it doesn't convert into actual equality of rights and opportunity and, and everything else, the niceties don't mean anything, right? I don't, I don't need people just being friendly with me because I'm another person, but not find me as, as equal. That doesn't do anything for anybody. And that's such an important point. And, and let me tell you, from my experience living in Montgomery, I think I realized that really early on, some of the nicest people I met were also some of the most bigoted, mm -hmm. the most prejudiced, and would definitely take action, right? Did take action against my parents, right? Would take action against me. You know, um, what did they, there was a saying about, you know, uh, essentially, sort of the kindest, most hospitable people ran the lynch mobs, the mm -hmm. literal lynch mobs, right? Um, have you seen those pictures? There's actually a book about it now where people in the 50s and 60s would plan picnics around a lynching. And, and I use that for, uh, there's a photo of that that I use in one of my classes at UCLA where you can see everyone literally with picnic baskets and blankets. And then there is a black man hanging from a tree. Oh my God. They're all smiling and drinking mint juleps. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> niceness, I mean, I think it works both ways. Nice people are not always the most just. And actually sometimes the least nice people actually believe in justice the most. Yeah. So it's really hard because we want to equate the two. And that's unfortunately not how our world works. Right. And I think with this, 
this focus, especially around leaders and leadership development, you know, and everything that's come out is it's this big word authenticity, you know, and I think it's not only what individuals are working on to be more their authentic self. It's almost like, how do you recognize whether that person or that colleague or who you're working with is showing up as their authentic self, right? And it's in the past, it was it was almost better not to be authentic and just be that person that everybody expects you to be for whatever role or position you're in, um, that maybe more people were able to get away with it. But I feel like in today's world, you know, it's people will see right through you. And, and that's a good thing. You're absolutely right. And one thing, you know, that I tell folks about growing up in Montgomery is in a lot of ways, you knew what you were up against because people didn't hide their racism yeah. uh, and their anti-immigrant sentiment. And so at least you knew. I think in much of the rest of the country, people have hidden it. But and so they use code language, right? And dog whistles. And so then you have to go through the extra effort of deciphering those and then also explaining uh, oftentimes to folks who are more moderate. Yeah, that actually means something, right? It's not a harmless comment. So that's one you know, aspect of living in Montgomery that I, I appreciated, even in terms of the the racism is that you knew exactly who was on your side and who wasn't. Yeah, no, that's that's really a great point, right? It's as long as I you're you're real, then we know what we're dealing with. It's probably it's not necessarily what I want, but at least it's you know there's no question about it. Um, so then tell us about Stop AAPI Hate um, and and how that organization came to be. Sure. So. Um... We started Stop AAPI Hate in March of 2020. For me, it all started actually about six weeks earlier um, when I got a phone call from a colleague who said that one of her um, employees or staff member's son was attacked at school. Um, And we were just beginning to hear about COVID. If you remember in February, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was in Asia. At that point, yeah. Exactly. But what I heard from my colleague was that he was at school, in his middle school, at, you know, on the schoolyard uh, during recess or lunch. And another kid approached him and said, you're a COVID carrier. Go back to China. And so when the child, you know, he was just flabbergasted and... He said, I'm not Chinese. Uh, When he said that, the other child punched him in the face and had 20 times. And so this is before we even had a single confirmed case of COVID in Southern California. So really, the racism preceded the actual virus, right? And it had infiltrated itself in the mind of a middle school child to attack another child for this. Um, so we were just immediately concerned. And so we said, okay, well, what do we need to do? So one, of course, is to help the family and work with the school district to make sure that their needs were being addressed. And then we also held a press conference with our local leaders, really just to say, this will not be tolerated mm-hmm. in our city, in our county. 
So we had a number of them come together for this press conference. And it was after that that we got, you know, a fair amount of media attention, both locally as well as nationally. And so my colleagues, uh, Russell and Cynthia at San Francisco State University and Chinese for Affirmative Action, they reached out to me because they were seeing the same thing happen in the Bay Area. Uh, Again, this was in February. So we said, uh, you know, what should we do? Planned a letter to the attorney general to say, you know, can you begin to collect data so we understand the problem? Mm -hmm. And their office said, well, we don't do that. You know, we rely on law enforcement to report hate crime. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, let's do it. Because I had actually created a web form on Google myself for L.A., And within a week, I got like a dozen incidents from, and that was again in February. So we created this website. We said, let's see what happens just so we know, right? Because we were, there were starting to be news stories. And within two weeks, we got like almost 700 incidents from all across the country. And so we said, oh my gosh, this is like really bad. And then it kept growing and growing. And, and so we, began to hire staff and then do, you know, form a, um, a formal collaborative essentially. So we've been doing this work for two years now and um, essentially moving not only from being a reporting center and then sharing that information with lawmakers, with journalists and others, but also doing policy work, right? And providing resources. So in terms of the resources, Um, direct help wherever we can or referrals, you know, because there are all across the country, like, can we connect these folks with resources in their own communities? And then the other piece is the policy. So now we have three bills in the California legislature to really start to address what's happening to people day in and day out in their lives. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we think about just the rhetoric, right, when when COVID first came out and all, you know, and it was coming from the top right? of it. And we all know how culture gets created. It, it, it comes from the top. So when you've got the top leader of our country, the president making these derogatory statements about COVID and, and from China, it's, you know, sure to to exasperate the problem. And, and, you know, and I think when, when I started kind of really getting passionate about Stop API, this just brought up a lot of kind of memories and these kind of um, passive aggressive behavior around racism, around Asian kids, you know, I mean, I, and I tell the story, my son, you know, I'm, I'm half Korean, half Caucasian, my husband's full Caucasian. So our son does not look Asian, but he very connects with my heritage, you know, with, with the Korean heritage, he's around all my family, my mom, everything. And I remember when he was like in second or third grade, the kids at the school were all running around, pulling their eyes back, talking about I'm Asian, you know, and Asian, you know, and, and they must learn from their parents. These are just little babies. And I and Keen told me he goes, "Mommy, I the, the kids were doing this." And I and at first I was just going to be like, "Oh, they're just kids. They're playing around." Because I grown up like that. Like it's not they're not being mean. They're just being silly and making these excuses. And so I was like, "Well, what did you what did you do?" And he goes, "I told them stop. You're being racist. My mom's Korean." And I was like, 
oh my gosh, like you were more bold to create, you know? And so even as a young child, like he knew that was wrong and, and he's calling out. So then on top of that, we get COVID and it just brings all of this to attention. So as you start collecting data, like what was the height? Have we reached the height of these crimes or is it just, you know, are, are the numbers getting higher? Right. Or, and then as far as like getting the the policy around that, if there is a COVID related crime around, you know, the AAPI community, that it is a hate crime. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about where we are today? Sure, sure. And first off, I just want to thank your son for what he did. I'm sure you must be so proud of him because, you know, to have the courage to stand up to um, his peers and say, you know, again, this will not be tolerated, right? Yeah. And um, because we did grow up with a lot of that. And I remember some really racist sort of things that were said and like limericks and things like that, that evoked and, you know, like you were saying, doing stuff with the eyes and whatnot. What I would say is, you know, we don't know if we've reached the height of it, but it's continuing. Mm -hmm. And even as COVID may have slowed down a bit, right, that's maybe a question right now, because I certainly know a lot of people who've gotten COVID in the last month. Me too. I think everybody's just accepted that. Right. But but the racism hasn't decreased, right? It's almost become normalized. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right about your earlier comments, which are, you know, the rhetoric that we saw from President Trump. And, and the thing is, too, that a lot of it, you know, what people don't realize, it wasn't just one person, right? Um, it's a concerted effort by a lot of folks in power because of what they want, you know, in terms of holding on to their power increasing, you know, racism works to get votes, Yeah, right? It absolutely works. And we've seen that time and time again. And, you know, similarly in, I think it was April of 2020, the GOP released a 53 page memo on how to use COVID and blame China and how to blame Chinese people. So again, it wasn't just like offhand remarks. It was a concerted strategy. And We even see it on the opposite side of the aisle with uh, Congressman Tim Ryan. He's using these China ads in running for the Senate. And the same thing is happening, right, where it evokes an anti-Asian sentiment, because that's the fertile ground that we live in, right? It's already there. And so the question is, do you use it to seed more racism, Mm -hmm. right? And that's, I think, what we're seeing is that while the newest iteration of this racism, right? We saw it with the Chinese Exclusion Act. We saw it with internment. There have been numerous laws uh, against South Asians, against Filipinos, Koreans. And, but this is the latest one, right? We thought that was our history, but it's actually our present. Mm-hmm. And so it won't just be about COVID anymore. It's also ways in which you know, there's a program called the China Initiative, which has been, there's actually a great story in NBC News about a scientist who lost her whole career because of allegations that were unfounded, not substantiated. And that's happened to numerous researchers and scientists, right? Um, 
there. We saw that after 9-11 and thousands of Muslims Muslim Americans had their lives upended, not, not just by personal attacks or interpersonal attacks by other people, by government policy. They were, the NSA was surveilling thousands of Muslims just because they're Muslim. Mm-hmm. So we, and that's why the policy piece we talked about earlier is so important because we all with our votes have a chance to change that mm-hmm. every single time it happens. And we have to say, you know what, we're not going to accept it. Even though I may not be a Muslim or even though you're not Chinese, mm-hmm. we've got to speak out against this and we have to vote against lawmakers who evoke this type of racism in their policymaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm right there. It's in the beginning of COVID. You know, my my cousin and and most of my family is full Korean, right? So we we look a little different. And I might not be accused of you know Chinese COVID, but they have, right? And 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 just like the kid, well, I'm not Chinese. We're all kind of in this together. And I feel like if there's any silver lining, I feel like this is one of the first times that as a community, as East Asian, South Asian, that we're all uniting together and, and having that, you know, stronger voice and, and to leaders like you and organizations like Stop API Hate, um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done and, and we need to actively do it together. It's. And your point is so important. I mean, one, you know, piece of information I'll share is, you know, of the folks who've reported to us um, about 40% are Chinese, but the rest are of all other backgrounds within the Asian American community. You have high numbers of of Korean, Japanese, but you also have high numbers of Filipino, Mm -hmm. of Vietnamese and biracial folks. Mm -hmm. So one of the largest categories after the ones I've mentioned um, are people who also identify as white. So people, you know, such as yourself, who've still experienced it. And by the way, you know, just we saw this after 9-11, which is, you know, a lot of sick Americans were targeted because they were believed or perceived to be Muslim. Right. Because they wore turbans like some of the folks in Afghanistan or whatever. I've seen we've seen incidents reported by folks who are Latina, you know, or black, but who have been, you know, perceived as being Asian. Right. So it doesn't even at a certain point matter what we are. It's what that racism is perceived. Right. They're using that and weaponizing it against what they perceive us to be. And let me just say too, your point is so important in terms of this is a time for us to come together. And I've seen it mm-hmm. in the last year, especially after, unfortunately, the Atlanta incident. Mm-hmm. I went to this one rally here it's in Koreatown. I saw, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers in walkers, in wheelchairs, you know, I saw Amas and Appas who couldn't speak, you know, anything but Korean. Um, I saw young people and it was so wonderful that they all came together and said, you know what, this is not our country. This is not our community, right? We refuse. It's not us in the sense is we refuse to accept it, mm-hmm. right? This is our country. 
Yeah. This is our community, but not what we're seeing out there. And we are not going to tolerate the racism and discrimination weaponized against us. And and especially when you look at, you know, current stats that are coming out, when you when you combine the minority citizens of the United States, right, of America, we have just as much right to be here as anybody else and and can have our own space. It's not so much the minority anymore. Right. And I think that the the more that we unite, the more that we have that bigger voice and that bigger presence and not just look at us as our individual ethnicity, you know, because once we do that, then we're just making ourselves smaller. And um, and I think that there's a huge opportunity to to just really unite. And I see that a lot, you know, within the Asian community more than ever with Black Lives Matter. I mean, so much of the Latin and the Asian community united. And, and it's really a beautiful thing to see because in the end, if somebody looks at you as less than a human, they're going to be looking at anybody else that looks different from them as less than a human. It's not isolated to one type of person. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And and you're right that we did come out, you know, so many of us after the George Floyd murder to say that that was unacceptable, right? And the police violence against Black men uh, and Black women was unacceptable. And so I think when we do come together, that's going to make the critical difference, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of engaging more civically, in terms of um, really speaking out against uh, what we're seeing. And, you know, let me just say one thing, you know, that I always share with my classes uh, at UCLA, uh, there's this great quote by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is, racism is the father of race, not mm-hmm. the other way around. So the way races were created in the Middle Ages, right, as we began to see imperialism, colonialism, uh, slave, a global slave trade, why did you need race, right? You needed race to subjugate people, mm-hmm. right? You needed it for to commit genocide because you have to say other people are less human than you. Because mm-hmm. if they're like you, how can you commit those atrocities, right? Yeah. And that's what we saw with what, you know, European conquerors did is they subjugated millions of people across the globe. And that's when you, before that, you can look in all the sort of treatises, there was never a talk of race, right? Mm-hmm. Because there is many differences. If you look at a, a light-skinned African-American person, they are lighter than a darker-skinned uh, Amer- uh, white American, right? Mm-hmm. Who may be Italian or Spanish, um, you know, similarly, you know, South Asians. Mm-hmm. I'm in the middle. There are people who are much darker than African-Americans mm-hmm. within the South Asian community. And there are people who are lighter than white people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so there is many differences within races as there are across races. And so we shouldn't fall into that trap mm-hmm. of believing right? race is nothing other than a social construct. And it was created for certain reasons. And so really being able to understand that when we talk about it. Yeah, that's that's a really, really great point. You know, sometimes we just get so caught up in this 
this way of, you know, that things were created and it's so systemic. So we're just trying to use that to, to make it better instead of just breaking it all down and saying, you know, what really is race, right? It was, it's really just a way to other people and, and have an excuse to kill off populations. I mean, that's, that's a great perspective. Exactly. So, and I, I know we have to wrap up, but before we do, how can people get involved with Stop AAPI Hate? Um, whether it's through, you know, sponsorship or activation policy, you know, please share. Um, that's a wonderful question. And let me just say to you that I am actually really optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, despite what we're seeing, I know we can come out of this. Um, healthier, that safer, and that we really will have solutions that carry all of our communities forward. And that's what we're trying to do with our bills. They're not just about addressing anti-Asian hate. They're about addressing hate, right? And making um, all of our communities safer um, and being able to thrive. So if you go on our website, you know, we have a number of places that folks can get involved. One is get your city council to just have a resolution, right? Pass a resolution against discrimination and hate. That's a good first step. Your school board, get involved with the PTA in terms of doing educational sessions. We also need all of our schools to teach ethnic studies. So we learn our real history, right? Because most of us, like you said, know and understand so many important pieces that have informed where we are today. I want to encourage folks to run for office Mm -hmm. because we need better representation. We need more women. We need more folks of color. Uh, We need young people. You know, most of the folks in Congress are octogenarians, especially Mm -hmm. in the Senate. And, you know, they serve their time and that's great. And now we need new blood, right? Mm -hmm. And we need new and fresh ideas. So um, if you go on our website, you'll see a few different ways to get involved. And just want to encourage folks that this is that time and moment where we come together to really, as you said, to break up our old way of thinking. I think with COVID, there was movement toward that, right? Where we could really change a lot of what our accepted practices or accepted policies and say no more. Mm-hmm. And we've opened our eyes to the fact that, yes, these things are cyclical and we're in a new cycle of injustice in our country. And so it's only, we will only continue to be a democracy if we all take part in it. It's not a spectator sport. And every election from now on is so critical because otherwise, It's not just going to be about addressing racism or misogyny. It's going to be about whether the American experiment with a multicultural democracy continues Mm -hmm. or if it's failed. Um, And that will be in our own lifetime. That is um, incredible and so inspiring. I'm I. With you, it's a lot of bad news. It's a lot of tough reporting that we have to digest. But I do feel very positive with, you know, just having people like you and and just everybody that's really, you know, kind of got around um, this idea and created this community that we're not going to accept hate anymore. And and there's a lot of work to be done. And we're in a very pivotal moment. And um, 
Thank you so much, Manju, for joining us today. I feel like we talked about a lot and I think we could go a whole nother hour to really dive in. Um, but I'm, I'm just really excited to, to share this with our community and all of our listeners so they can learn more about the work that you're doing. And um, I'm going to see you on the up and coming Asians in advertising, breaking the barriers. You're going to be one of the keynote speakers on that. So I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Well, I'm so grateful for this conversation. And again, um, the contributions that Southern Glazer made, we're just really so appreciative. And it is about all of us coming together in a variety of ways. And just want to say, I know that we're going to come through this. And I know that with each and every one of the listeners today taking an active role, um, we're going to come out to a better place. And, you know, one of my favorite poems is by Langston Hughes, which is, you know, let America be America again. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I think we're going to see in the coming years. Yes, absolutely. As a fellow American to another fellow American, we will make it what it should be. So thank you very much, Manju. And um, we look forward to hearing more. Thank you, Julie. Take care. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers. Cheers.